Mickey asked me um, if there had been any update on Paul Aiken, so I thought I would share that, that there's really there's really not. I talked with Todd, his son, this week, and he said that Paul is suffering from multiple health problems all at the same time, and so he's still in the hospital. Uh, I believe Nancy is staying with Todd and his family in the St. Louis area, so she can be closer and someone can be there for her. Um, if if you're interested in Sending cards, uh, that would be fantastic. I know that that's something that is visual, that they could see and be reminded of our care for them. Um, if you need their information or where Todd lives to send that, please talk with me afterwards. I can give that to you. But that's an update on Paul Aiken. Um, so we're going to be in Ecclesiastes. We're going to finish chapter 9 and begin in chapter 10 today. So turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Last week we went through verse 12, today we start in verse 13, through the the third verse of chapter 10. Let's read together and then we'll have another word of prayer. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Chapter 10, verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. Let's pray again. Lord, reveal to us exactly what you want us to see and understand and know from this. God, help us to grow in godliness, to grow in our depth of understanding you, though we know we never fully will. Um, Lord, help us to see wisdom as a good thing, not vanity, not in the sense that it's also gone when we breathe our last, Lord, but it can accomplish for us so much more than foolishness. Remind us, convince us of that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So you can see right off the bat here in our text in verse 13, 13 through 15, Solomon uses a short story. To prove a point. I don't know if I'd consider it a parable necessarily, but it's a, a short story. And he recounts something that he says he has seen. Now, I don't know if, it's not really clear if this is a situation that he's literally seen with his eyes or if it's just kind of the principle in life that he's seen play out. So whether it's literal or allegorical, we're not totally sure, but there's actually some evidence for both ways of understanding this. We could see how this story could just be metaphorical. You guys know what a metaphor is. Kids, you know what a metaphor is? It's, it's something sort of imaginary that takes the place of something literal. So it helps us understand uh, something deeper. It's kind of like a parable in that sense. Uh, but it's allegorical. It's metaphorical. And so we could see how this story that Solomon shares fits that. So think about this with me. The little city in this story in 13 through 15 could refer to the body to your body the great king 
that it refers to the corrupt nature that pursues us, that attacks us, that besieges our hearts. And despite the pushback to wrongdoing, this great king or our sinful nature continues to chase down and oppress us constantly. Now, the poor wise man in this idea would be understood as the spirit of God within a person, that small voice of reason that gives some relief, that gives some rescue. And despite all of the attacks of the fleshly nature, godly wisdom, even though it's small in a person, godly wisdom every time wins the victory. It wins the ultimate victory. Now, I don't think this is a wrong way of looking at things, but commentator Matthew Henry says that lots of Old Testament scholars actually understood it this way. So it's not a bad thing. It's not wrong, but there's something more to this. Believe it or not, Solomon saw this almost this very thing play out in his lifetime. You may not know this story. If you want to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 20, you can, and just kind of be looking through that as we talk here. This is a really interesting chapter of biblical history, but it tells the story of a guy named Sheba. Not a name I've heard in the U.S. in my lifetime, but his name is Sheba. Okay, And he's not a good guy. He takes a stand against King David, raises his fist, so to speak, in rebellion, and convinces a bunch of people to turn away from David in chapter 20. And so David's general, his name is uh, Joab, he goes and he takes off after Sheba to, to stop him, to capture him, to end his rebellion. And he chases him to a little town named Abel. It's a small town named Abel, and he, he besieges it. He surrounds it, whatever he does to the city, they're not going anywhere in that city. And in 2 Samuel chapter 20, verse 16, a wise woman appears. So it's not a man in this story, it's a woman in this story. She appears and she goes to Joab and to save her little town from the complete destruction that a war between these armies would, would cause, she works it out to be delivered for Joab not to lay siege and have an all-out battle there. And she agrees with Joab on a way to save her people. Uh, Unfortunately for Sheba, the way to save her people was for her to hand over Sheba. And she does that, as you can read in that story. It, It involved his death. In the end, her boldness and her wisdom saved her city. But you know what? A name is never given for this woman. Her name's not given in Scripture. And I would guess that a lot of you have never heard that story before, have never looked at that, have never seen her. You know what? This forgotten woman's bravery and wisdom saved her people, but it's been forgotten. Sheba stood up and shouted for mutiny against the king. But the quiet and wise words of one woman was better. Sheba had the force of an army with him, but the wisdom of one woman was better than all of his weapons of war. And this is what Solomon is writing about here. You can certainly see the similarities between 2 Samuel 20 and Ecclesiastes chapter 9. But really, I think, though, we need to understand this in the light of Christ, when we shine the light of Jesus Christ on this short story that Solomon gives us. I think we can make some more uh, comparisons here. 
And it's, I don't know if this gets you guys excited, but in my study time as I was reading and looking at commentaries and stuff, this all kind of came and I thought, man, this is so neat. But think about the church. How is the church often described? A city, right? A city on a hill, uh, the city of God, of which saints are fellow citizens of that city. So in comparison to the whole world, the church is very small. God's people are just a few, is how we're described. Now, by church, I'm talking about big C, the church, the people of God all over the earth, in every end of the earth, not just Ramsey Creek. I'm talking about it in the same way that John 3.16 refers to the world. Right there he says, God so loved the world. It doesn't mean every person in the world. This means people from all over the world. These are God's people, the church from every part of the earth. The church is often seen in the eyes of the world as foolish, as silly, as unwise, as little. We're few in number. We're kind of like Jesus described us as a little flock in Luke chapter 12. They're just a little flock. So the church is this city, and who is the great king that comes against it? The devil. Satan comes against this little city. But you know what? He's only great in the sense that he has lots of people who follow him. He leads many people down a wide path where they follow him willingly. That's what makes him great in that sense. He besieges the church. He surrounds it on all sides. He creates strongholds of division persecution, sometimes even heresy, and as scholar John Gill puts it, by throwing in hand grenades of strife and contention to raise a civil war among the citizens themselves and by various temptations to sin in order to gain deserters. This is the battle that God's people, the church, are in. And these are just some of the ways that he attacks this little city, the church. And as Satan lays siege on the church of God, the voice of a poor, wise man is heard. I think you can tell where we're going with this. A rescuer of the people, one who is delivered, who delivers the city by his wisdom. Christ, our Redeemer, came as one who was poor. Small and silly and foolish in the eyes of the world. He had no place to lay his head. He had no earthly possessions, and he came with the humility of a servant. He became poor, Philippians 2 tells us. He was nothing in the eyes of the world. Without a deliverer, this little city would be without hope, without any kind of defense. They needed to be rescued. I don't want us to get the wrong idea in this, though. This wasn't just a spur-of-the-moment kind of fix. Well, oh... God's not up there saying, whoops, I didn't know that was going to break. Here, let me fix it. That's not what this is getting at. The deliverance and redemption of the church by Christ is the fruit of infinite wisdom. It was planned all along. Think about Ephesians chapter 1. Read verses 7 through 9. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all, listen now, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. 
So in him, this little city of the church is rescued from all of her enemies. Every attack of the devil we're rescued from, from Satan and all of his principalities and powers, from the world and all of the evil that's found here in it, from sin and all of its consequences, from the law, its curse and its condemnation, from ultimately spiritual death. The church is saved from all of these enemies because of this wise, poor man that rescued us by his wisdom. Now look at verses 16 through 18. We start to get into what's probably a little more familiar style of proverb writing. They praise a few things. They praise in verse 16, they praise wisdom over physical strength. In verse 17, they praise quiet wisdom over foolish shouting. And then in verse 18, they praise, he praises wisdom over war. Let's look at those together individually now. Despite all of the armies of the enemy and despite the earthly rulers throughout the centuries who've tried to quench the flame of the gospel and who've tried to eradicate Christians everywhere, despite all of the might of Satan himself, God's lowly and meek people endure. And even more than endure, we overcome. Even though the wisdom of godliness is largely despised, and ignored in our world, it's always stronger than earthly might, and it's always going to last forever. The poor wise man could do more by his wisdom than the great king could do with his army. Think about that for just a moment. That's not the prescription of power today. It's opposite, isn't it? The wisdom of God in Christ accomplishes far more than the vast armies of the enemy. Look at verse 17. The words of the wise are heard in quiet, better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever, have you ever observed two people hollering at each other? I won't ask the more convicting question and ask if you are one of those people, but have you ever observed it, you know, from the outside? It's just a shouting match, right, of two people. And here's my question. What's the outcome? What'd you say? Headaches, yeah. Have you ever seen in that scenario, have you ever seen someone stop and say, Wow, you convinced me. I believe you. You won me over with your loud arguing. Thank you. No, that doesn't happen ever. When people are hollering at each other, no one's listening. No one is listening in a shouting match and everyone loses. No one's opinion is ever really changed by that kind of conversation. So I would say, I'd give this encouragement today. And I think this is timely in our culture right now. There will always be people who gain a following because they talk the loudest. But those people are rarely, if ever, the ones we should be following or listening to. So for some additional help in this area, I want to look at some of Solomon's other words 
Proverbs about speech. And I'm just going to go through these quickly. You can jot down the reference if you want. But these are from the book of Proverbs, chapter 14, verse 7. He says, Leave the presence of a fool, for there you do not meet the words of knowledge. Proverbs 15, 2. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. Proverbs 18.2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Whew. Let me read that one again. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. I'll let you all apply that yourself, because I think it's pretty easy at this point. Proverbs 18.6, a fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. Proverbs 29.11, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Finally, Proverbs 29.9, if a wise man has an argument with a fool, the fool only rages and laughs, and there is no quiet. Again, this is a timely word from the Lord in what our culture is experiencing right now. Rather than shouting our opinions from the biggest platform we have. Wisdom would tell us to speak truth in the quiet moments for only the few who really want to listen. Proverbs 17, 27, and 28 tell us that whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps quiet is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. It's easy to be drawn into shouting matches these days, whether it's on the internet or on the phone or in real life. But this kind of behavior only reveals the deficiencies in our character, not the strengths of wisdom. Look at verse 18 of Ecclesiastes 9. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. There's a lot here. Let me read what one of my commentaries said about war and wisdom. War wounds, wisdom heals. War overturns, but it's wisdom that builds up and restores. War is the hurricane that sinks the ship. Wisdom is the gentle breeze that wafts it to the safe haven. War is the flood that ruts the earth and sweeps its soils into the sea. Wisdom drops softly like the rain or the gentle dew from heaven to refresh the thirsty ground. In a word, war and all of its weapons belong to the bloody brood of him who was a murderer from the beginning. Wisdom is the attribute and gift of him who came to bring peace on earth, goodwill to men, and glory to God in the highest. Just as one wise man in a city can be its salvation, so one evil person can bring it to the ground. You guys remember a guy named Achan in Joshua chapter 7? Achan had disobeyed the Lord. They had just conquered Jericho, and they were told to eliminate everything. Um, almost everything, and, and Achan saw some things that he desired, and he stole them, and he hid them under his tent. And because of this, Israel's army, which was greater in number than the town of Ai, they were turned away. They were defeated in battle by a tiny army, 
And Joshua saying, what is happening? What is going on? And God says, there's a problem, Joshua, in the camp. There's sin in the camp. Think about what all of Israel was thinking at that moment. This tiny army had just beat theirs. What other enemies did they have in their pursuit of the promised land? One's way bigger than that little town. So they're thinking, we can't even beat this tiny little army. How on earth are we going to go in and, and, and take on everybody else? Because of his sin, Achan put the whole nation at risk. He got 36 of his friends killed. And he condemned himself and all of his family to death because of his sin. One sinner destroys much good. Solomon says here. And I think chapter 10 verse 1 carries this same idea. It says, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. How many of you guys have gardens at home? How many of you guys grow potatoes? Okay, all right. My my parents, potatoes are too much work for me. I'm I'm too lazy for that. But my parents, my dad loved growing potatoes, sweet potatoes, white potatoes, red potatoes. And so we got the job as kids that we would go and we would dig the potatoes when they're ready. Um, and then we'd wash the potatoes and then we'd dry the potatoes and then we'd move the potatoes. Potatoes were a big part of our life for a week or so. Okay. I don't resent potatoes. I like potatoes, but this was a problem for me as a kid. Uh, so we, we'd do all of this stuff for the potatoes and we'd store them down in the basement where it's cool. Right. So they last for a pretty long time, but you know what happens if one of them gets rotten? You can smell it real quick, can't you? Even when you buy them from the store, if they're in that bag and you walk into the pantry or wherever and you, what is that smell? Usually it's going to be a potato. Now, if you don't remove that bad potato quickly, what happens? It starts to spread, right? That grossness from that potato will spread to the other potatoes. You've heard this old saying, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch, right? That's the same idea here. This is what Solomon is is getting at when he talks about the dead fly and the perfume. One dead fly makes the whole ointment stink. Guys, one, one indiscretion in our lives can invalidate years of good living. It really can. One betrayal of God's grace can undo many acts of goodness. We have seen all too often stories in the news and in our Christian circles of pastors who have fallen from immorality. They should rightly be held accountable. They should rightly be removed from leadership. But I also think we should remember those guys probably did a lot of good in their ministries in the years that they were serving. They did a lot of good things. They maybe taught the, the scriptures well. But you know what? It doesn't matter if they were in their church six months or 60 years. One foolish act outweighs all the wisdom and honor that it previously had. And now their reputation stinks. We know this is true. 
the fragrance of perfume can change from lovely to really nasty with just a single dead fly. And the same is said in regards to your reputation with one single act of foolishness. Friends, we need to be careful how we walk. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul's words help us understand this better. I want to read a section from Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 1. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering, see the similarities with what Ecclesiastes is saying, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who's sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And then verse 15 caps it off. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Ecclesiastes 9.18, the last verse of chapter 9 says that one person living foolishly can destroy a family, a nation. And the first verse of Ecclesiastes 10 says that a foolish act can destroy a person's honor. Instead of foolishness, walk in wisdom. But let me be clear about something in this. I'm not talking about wisdom that you're going to hear from Oprah or from the Wall Street Journal, or from New York Times. That's not the kind of wisdom that I'm talking about here. This is not earthly wisdom, worldly, fleshly wisdom. This is godly wisdom that only comes from being taught by the Spirit of God through His Word. That's the kind of wisdom that Paul is encouraging us to walk in. And so we walk wisely because our honor is at stake. Your family might be at stake too. This idea of honor leads us into the next verse of chapter 10, verse 2. It says, A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Now, before anyone jumps to this conclusion, this is not talking about political parties. Okay? Our system of government was not in Solomon's mind hundreds of years ago when he said this. What Solomon I think does have in mind is the idea of honor again because the right hand in in scripture signifies honor. It signifies a place of authority. In Ephesians chapter one, verse 20, we're told that Jesus sits at the right hand of God. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells this big story about sheep and goats and the sheep who are blessed by the father are on the right side and the goats who are condemned are on the left So right signifies righteousness, whereas the left signifies unrighteousness. 
But you know what? A person is only truly wise when their heart is inclined toward righteousness, towards that right action. On the flip side, a person is truly foolish when their heart is inclined toward unrighteousness. Again, this goes against a lot of what our what the world is telling us because you can gain an awful lot in this world with unrighteousness. Many of you who work probably have opportunity if you really wanted to make some extra money or to get ahead by doing unchristian things that a lot of other people would just go ahead and do to get ahead, to get more. But that's not the way of honor. That's not the way of righteousness. So walk in wisdom so that your heart is inclined to the right, to righteousness. And I would pray that we would be brothers and sisters in Christ who point each other to walk in wisdom by our own lives and sometimes by our loving rebukes and by our care. Verse 3 of chapter 10 is another warning against foolishness and against foolish people. Verse 3, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. The reality is, every one of us is guilty of doing foolish things. But then there are people whose lives are marked by foolishness. You guys know what I'm saying? There... It seems like everything that they choose to do is foolish. This is always a really sad thing. And just so we're all remembering, nothing is beyond the grace of God. So even those whose lives are marked by foolishness can be redeemed by salvation. And we pray that they will be. But Solomon says that some people display their foolishness in even just the simplest acts of life, like walking down a road. They're, just how they walk down the street shows how foolish that they are. Think of, instead of just a long straight path, think of uh, a path that leads to a crossroads. So you've got signs pointing different places to go and different paths to choose. Think about that. Keep that in your mind for a moment. Think about one of the paths. Maybe it's flat and it's easy, but it's going to take you longer to get where you want to go. But then there's a different path that's hard that's winding, that's dangerous, but it's a shortcut. What would wisdom say? Go the sure thing. It might take you a little longer, but go the way that's not going to end in heartache and danger and pain. But sometimes, for whatever reason, people choose the other path. The path that's winding, the path that leads to possible destruction. To a wise person... The choice is obvious here. Take a little longer, go the right way. But to someone who's foolish, they just put their foolishness on display by choosing the wrong path. Stick with this idea of crossroads for just a moment. I think today, you and I are sitting at a crossroads in in, in some kind of a sense. The foolish paths are there to choose as well as the wise ones. There's a lot of different ones that we could look at, but the foolish ones are the ones who are marked with comfort and compromise. 
These are the roads that are easy at the start. And they promise all kinds of flashy things, but they require you to waver in your principles in order to stay on them. The wise paths are the ones that are marked by challenge and conviction. These roads are the ones that involve uncomfortable dedication and promise a life of challenge, but in the end, make us stronger. Before you today, before me today, is the choice of a path. Which one are we going to continue down? Is your heart inclining you towards worldly comfort or towards godly conviction? The poor but wise deliverer came to renew our minds to choose the path of wisdom each day, moment by moment. Don't be caught living a life of foolishness for everyone to see and ruin your honor in the process. Repent. Turn to Christ. Give up our foolish ways and then rest in His finished work. Put on His righteousness and you will be made right before the righteous judge. It's, it's not an easy path. And we know that up front. Think of Jesus' first call to His disciples He called them away from everything they knew, from everything that was comfortable. He does the same now. We're not calling people to be saved to improve their lives. Because oftentimes our lives are not improved. We talked about that last week. Sometimes following Christ leads to our death. Jesus doesn't say, follow me in order to live a better life. He says, follow me to be saved from sin and death. It's not an easy path, but it is the only path that leads to life, real life, real living, both on this earth and for all of eternity. And we're faced with that crossroads today. Which way are you going to go? What path are we going to go down? Are we going to go the way to the left of dishonor and foolishness? Are we going to have our hearts being inclined to the right, to truth and righteousness? I pray this morning that the answer is clear. Father, we know that you are good and we know that you are righteous. We also know, Lord, that that our foolishness goes before us. That's that's bound up in all of our hearts uh, because of the fall, but also because of our own unrighteousness. And so foolishness is, is wrapped up in us and it's it's put on display almost every day. And in our own power, we have no ability to change that. But through the power of the Spirit, Lord, I know that that we can walk in your wisdom. I pray, Lord, that you would renew our minds to think this way. Even in the small, everyday things of life, where we have the option to choose truth, but a harder path, or foolishness and an easy path. In the everyday things of life, Lord, help us to know what's right and to do it. God, I pray that you would cleanse us from our foolishness. Cause us to walk in wisdom. For the glory of your name here on earth. Lord, for the sake of our own souls. For the sake of our families. God, help us to walk in wisdom. I pray, Lord, that you would comfort those who are hurting.
I pray for those who have taken the path that leads away from righteousness. Lord, I pray that you would intercede, that they would be reminded of the truth and its goodness in their life, and that they would turn to embrace it and away from foolishness, Lord. We thank you for Christ who became poor and became your wisdom so that we would not just have an example of how to live, Lord, but also through his spirit, we would be given strength and power to live right. Thank you for him. In his name we pray. Amen.